Today we're gonna do like old fashioned church. The software has gone out or whatever it's called. We have no words on the screen. So look within your heart and your soul and just sing something to Jesus. If you don't know the song, sing from your heart. But just letting you know so that you can still worship. he never fails and it's totally exhausting striving and building on our own so today we're just gonna say God whatever you want to build in our lives we just ask you to have your way in us and through us build your kingdom through us unstoppable God
Jesus this day. We ask, oh God, this day that you help us to see you. Father, some of us have had weeks that will not compare to others. Some of us have had pain. Some of us have had joy. Some of us rejoice in you. For those hearts that came seeking this, seeking you this morning, Father, help them to see you clearly. Father, as we seek to know you more, may we ward off the enemy's arrows, the darts, the things that come at us. And Father, on this very special, special weekend, where we remember those who gave the ultimate sacrifice, who wrote a check up to giving up their life just so that we can sit in this room and proclaim your glory and freedom. May you be with the loved ones of all those who have been lost. May you be with those who, who seek just to understand why and, and help all of us to say thank you for those families. But God, more than the sacrifice of those soldiers was the sacrifice of your one and only son. Because there will be a day when all those who call upon your name that we will see again that we will see in your glory, that we will see in, in heaven with you, Father. And I pray that anybody this day who does not know you and, and your Son as Lord and Savior, may they not leave this place. May they not turn this station. May they not change anything until they let somebody know, today I found Jesus as Lord and Savior. Because, God, we truly want to lift you up high. And we want to give you the honor and glory for this day. Speak through our pastor. May his words of wisdom reign in our hearts. Fill us up and help us to go out and live for you. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' holy name. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Thank you. It's funny. Oh, now it's working. Awesome. <laughs> Yay. Which is great. We've been praying for that. Uh, they, they say you don't know what you've got till it's gone. And today we, we got a great example of that. Our video card seemed to give up the ghost. It may have a little bit of life left in it. We'll see. Uh, but that's, it wasn't intentional about not having the lyrics up on the screen. But as a pastor, I am trained to always find a, an analogy in everything. Which is why my family, if you live in the home of a pastor, you have the right to remain silent because anything you say or do could potentially be used in church against you. Um, because of that, you know, I, I just think about the ways in which you guys don't see our tech team and the ways in, in which they go about helping facilitate our conversation every Sunday until such a time that that doesn't work. And it makes me think about the fact that this is Memorial Day weekend. And I always get Memorial Day and Veterans Day mixed up. So, so just to clarify, Veterans Day is for those veterans who have fought and come home. Memorial Day is for those who have fought and paid the ultimate price. And it is a time of remembering those, many of whom we don't know, but we all owe. We get to gather here today openly celebrating our faith in Jesus Christ because of sacrifices that they have made. And I often think of that verse, greater love has nobody than this, that they would lay down a life for a friend or lay down their life for people they will never even meet. And there are men and women who have put on uniforms 
and run to the front lines when other people are running away from them. And I don't, I'm not just talking about those in military uniforms. I'm talking about those in police uniforms and those in firemen's uniforms and those in nurses' and doctors' uniforms that run to the front lines when other people are backing away and are willing to put their own safety on the line, some of whom pay the ultimate price for it. And so, I mean, for, for many of us, we don't understand this. The, the, the biggest battles we fought is trying to find a parking spot at the beach during Memorial Day, or, or, or the fights that we have fought for our freedom online with other people on social media, which are not fights you should get into, by the way. Not advocating it whatsoever. But there are some of you in here today who have willingly done that. We've got two World War II veterans who sit in the back every Sunday in Ben and Merv, and I love those two. It's hard to believe. We've got veterans from every war that, that call Lighthouse home, and today I want to invite somebody who, who fought in Vietnam, who carries the reminders in his body of the sacrifices he has made, but also carries the memories uh, of the, the fellow soldiers that paid the ultimate price for us. I'm going to invite Jack Bailey to come up and simply pray. Yeah, you can, you can definitely clap. I'm going to invite Jack to come up and, and pray over us as a people who, who live out of the gift that people like he and others uh, have, have purchased for us. And, and, and the reminder also in this is that we gather here today because of the greatest gift, and that is the gift of, of the Son of God, Jesus, the word that became flesh that willingly took our punishment upon himself so that we can be called rightfully sons and daughters of God and be restored back into relationship with him. So today we are celebrating those who paid the ultimate gift, including Jesus Christ. And I just want to invite you to pray for us as we enter into this time. Heavenly Father, probably not. Details. Hello? Give it a sec. There you go. Heavenly Father, we just come to you right now and say thank you, Father. Thank you for being in our lives. Thank you for this church and our pastors and our, our church family here, Father. And this is a special day, Father. This is the day not really of celebration. It's a day of remembrance mm -hmm. of those who have given their lives uh, for this country, Father. And we just lift them up and lift the families of the, those people up, Father, because even today, I know they're still hurting for the losses that they, they've sustained. So, Father, just be with this uh, family here, Father, and uh, guide us on the path that you want us to go on, Father. Take care of uh, everybody in this church, Father, and uh, all the churches around Costa Mesa, all over the country. Mm -hmm. So, Father, we just uh, ask the people to remember those people that have sacrificed their lives for this country just honor them, Father. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, Jack. Truly, truly am grateful for those who are willing to, to run to the front lines when, when others run away. Um, today we are going to briefly step out of the book of John. For those of you who have been part of this journey with us over this last uh, since January, we have been slowly, methodically working through the Gospel of John. And last week, we finished up John chapter 7, which brings us to John chapter 8, 
one of my absolute favorite stories in the Bible. It's a story about a woman who's caught in the act of adultery. She's dragged before Jesus by an angry crowd who demands that he pass the sentence upon her. And one of the things I love about the story is the way that Jesus totally flips the script on those who are her accusers. Ultimately, they recognize their own guilt. And the woman that is, you know, recognizes her brokenness, he gives her this unbelievable gift of grace. I love that story, and I can't wait for us to get to process through it, but here's the thing that I want to acknowledge today. John probably didn't write that story. John probably did not intend to insert that story at John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Because the reality is, when you look back at the oldest manuscripts that we have of John's gospel, it's not in there. And when you look at the language used, it actually doesn't sound like there's words that are used only in that short little passage that are used nowhere else in John's writings, but has more in common with with Mark's writings and Luke's writings than John's. And when you look at the flow of John's gospel, and you were to simply omit that section, that story that we love so much, that I love so much. And you looked, and you just kind of then put it back together, and you start reading from 7, verse 52, and then you jump all the way to chapter, uh, verse 12 of chapter 8. You would notice that it actually is a continuation of the conversation in chapter 7. So it flows better without that little story there. And yet, it's there. And, and so theologians have often grappled with, is this original to John? Because it's in many of the later manuscripts, but it's not in the earliest ones. And at the same time, we don't want to just throw it out because we have as as early as 10 years from when John wrote his gospel, we have documented evidence that this story was in circulation within the body of Christ. This was a story that they were sharing with one another of Jesus. So theologians are pretty, have a lot of consensus that this was probably something that actually happened, a, a conversation that Jesus actually had. But... John didn't write it, and it was circulating within the body of Christ. And so then one day, uh, one of those copyists who was taking John's gospel and copying it down to be able to pass on another manuscript took it upon themselves to insert this story. And they said, where's the best place to stick it? And they decided to stick it here. But chances are this was not original to John. And that's why when you, you don't need to turn here because I'm just going to read it. In most of your Bibles, there might be at in between chapter 7, verse 52, and, and then to verse 53, there might be some sort of a, a little note that says something like this. The earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7:53 through 8:11. A few manuscripts include these verses wholly or in part after John 7:36, John 20:25, 20, Luke 21:38 or Luke 24:53. And then in my Bible it actually puts the whole story in italics in order to kind of clarify this is probably not original to John. Now, the reason I share that with you is because it brings up a really important question that we absolutely have to grapple with. If this wasn't original to John, then how can we trust anything that we read in Scripture? How can we actually trust the Bible? Because we've all kind of said, well, the Bible tells me so. But that doesn't mean a whole lot if we begin to doubt whether or not we can actually trust the Bible. And so today what I want to do is I want to step out of our study through John and I simply want to grapple with the question, can we trust this book 
that we know of as the Bible? Can we trust it? Can we trust what's in it? Can we trust the words that we read? And in order for us to be able to ask that question, we have to back up a little bit more and ask the question, well, what is this? How did it come to be in our hands? So that we can then answer whether or not we can trust it. All right? So that's where we're going today. We're going to be all over scripture. Maybe we're going to have something on the screen. If it doesn't happen, not a big deal. I only spent all week preparing slides for you, so we'll see. So... Let's step back from, from this. Let's step back from where we often start in the church, which is to say this is God's word, and let's instead approach this from a simply humanistic standpoint. Obviously, if we're believers, we don't take this simply from a human standpoint, but let's just start there. If we strip away any kind of spiritual element here and say, what is this? we would still be left with the realization that this is the single mo this is one of the wonders of the world it is the most read first published most published thing most quoted and most influential work in the history of mankind and yet it's not a book as we often talk about it is actually 66 individual books written over the, the span of 1,500 years on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. And it's not even written by one person. Obviously, if it's written over 1,500 years, it was written by 40 different authors writing within very different contexts. Now, let's just put that into uh, to some sort of context here. 1,500 years. America is 250 years old. Think of how much America has changed in the 250 years since the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock. Or, or, or let's even break that down a little bit closer. I, somebody sent me something today that said um, in, it's been 66 years between when the Wright brother, brothers flew for the very first time and, and we landed on the moon for the very first time. 66 years. It's crazy to see how much society changes, how much our understanding of the world changes, how much our, our, our perspectives of how we interact with one another has changed over the course of 250 years. And now consider 1,500 years. That's, what is that? Let's do the math. That's six times as long as America has been a country that it took to do this on three different continents. Think of the amount of, of difference in the morality and the ways that we approach people and, and, the, and, and the perspectives on life and the perspective theologically. And yet, despite all of that distance, one of the things that is truly remarkable about the Bible is the way that it is utterly consistent. I have this, it doesn't look like we'll have any slides right now, so let me just read. Despite all the cultural differences that, that have influenced these 40 authors as they wrote, the Bible is breathtakingly consistent and unified in its understanding of where the world came from, who it belongs to, our purpose and our place in it, and what constitutes morality. That is consistent. And just to take this one step further, can we go ahead and put that picture up there for just a moment? The genie sent me this picture, and for those of you who have seen this before, I've, I've seen it, but I've never really stopped to consider it, and it was very timely that she sent it to me. All of those little white lines at the bottom is a chapter of the Bible. 
that really long one in the middle, if you have good eyesight, that's Psalm 119, which is the longest chapter in the whole Bible. There it goes. Doesn't matter. All of those other lines were the, the points of contact, the ways that the Bible is constantly referencing back to other passages or it's foreshadowing, moving forward. All of those are the, the ways, it's a, it's a beautiful tapestry of how the Bible holds together even though there's all that time and all that distinction between the people who are writing. So from a simply humanistic standpoint, if the Bible had no sort of theological connotations to it, it is a remarkable wonder that it, it, it even is what it is and it holds together as well as it does and it is as consistent as it is. But not only that, we have to consider the fact that it has survived. It survived purges. It has survived burnings. It has survived not one, but two destroyed temples. It has survived nations rising and falling. The fact that we can hold in our hands and read words that were penned 3,500 years ago by people living in the middle of a desert is remarkable. And then you take into consideration the fact that it continues to speak into our lives, continues to have utter relevance. I don't know about you, but I have found, especially as we've worked through John, in this season, this crazy season that we're living in, the Bible has been radically relevant in figuring out how to navigate this time, in figuring out how to interact with people who think very differently and the power struggles that we've been in and what, how should the people of God act in it, this continues to be a place that we can go back and look at. But I would not attribute that solely to the wisdom of the writers. This brings us to the other aspect of what the Bible is that we have to acknowledge as Christ followers, and that is it is not simply the work of human ingenuity. We call this, and I would say rightfully, we call this God's word. But what does that mean that this is God's word? The Bible talks a lot about the fact that God played a part in the formation and the writing of Scripture. Lots of passages do that, but let's go ahead and, there it goes, so we're not going to use that. Um, let's go ahead and read from 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you have your Bible, this would be the one time I want you to turn there with me. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's right towards the back of your Bible. If you're in Revelation, go a little bit left. We're not quite to the end. If you find yourself in Romans or Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, any of those, go right a little bit further until you get to 2 Timothy. If you find yourself in 1 Timothy, you're almost there. Almost. All right. 2 Timothy. Paul, one of a guy who really stood in opposition to the gospel, thought he was doing God a favor by trying to stamp out all of these well-meaning Christ followers who were saying that Jesus was the Messiah comes face to face with the risen Jesus, everything changes, and he goes from being the greatest opponent to the greatest proponent of the gospel. And, and much of the book of Acts tells the story of Paul sharing the gospel in cities and, and the opposition that he gets. So he's writing to his protege, one of the guys that he's mentored named Timothy, who is the pastor over Ephesus. Funny thing is later on, John, the writer of our gospel we've been studying, John will become like the, the, the elder statesman of that same region. So it, it's fitting that we're reading this. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, because I'm going to get a running start into where we're going, Paul writes this. You know all about my teaching, my way of life, 
my purpose, my faith and patience, love, endurance, the persecutions and sufferings, what kind of things happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions I endured in those cities. He was stoned, and I mean with physical rocks, okay? So they were trying to kill him. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. This is Paul reminding Timothy what he already knows about Paul's biography. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Boy, you don't see bumper stickers with that on it, do you? We don't, we, that's not the, the, the verse that you choose to post on your social media to encourage people, but it is such an important reminder that if you call yourself a Christ follower, you're not signing up for a cushy, easy walk. You will endure persecution while you watch those who want nothing to do with God seemingly succeeding and you're pulling your hair out going, why? How long? But as for you, Timothy, and as for us, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how in your infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through the faith in Jesus Christ. For all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. There is a ton there. I'm not going to try to parse all of it. There's one word in there that I really want us to lean into, and that is the word God-breathed. Some of your translations might be inspired by God, and we are left asking, well, what does that mean? Because that's the crux of what we're talking about here. What does it mean that all Scripture is God-breathed? In order to answer that question, I want to go back in time to the very first thing that God breathed into, and that's humanity, more specifically Adam in the Garden of Eden. Because you remember in, in the act of creation, God had a tendency to speak things into existence. Let there be light, and there was light. Let there be land, and there was land. Let there be wild animals upon the land, and there they are. But then when it came to the sixth and final day, in the formation of humanity, God got his hands dirty. He got down onto his knees, and he scraped together the dust of the earth, and he formed a human form out of it. And then... Oh, wow, I didn't see that coming, right? And then he breathed into, I know, balloons. I didn't go red for a very good reason, Ethan. Okay, and then he breathes into it the breath of God into humanity. And we become this divine synthesis of corruptible flesh and divine spirit. Now the question becomes, well, what did that mean for humanity? And I'll tell you, there's two extremes that some people take, and neither of them are true. On the one hand, him breathing his spirit into the dust does not mean he possessed the dust, as if he made himself a nice little mud puppet that would do everything he wants it to do, right? Obviously, look around us. That's not how the world works. But the other extreme that we need to avoid is that he didn't just breathe life into humanity and let them go. So that they would go, oh, yeah, so that they would just go wherever they want. If that was the case, 
chaos would ensue. And some of you might be saying, well, chaos has ensued, but not really. Because what we, when it says that God breathed life into humanity, that we would be his image bearers, there's something in between the extremes of either complete control and complete abandonment. Instead, he endows us with free will so that we can choose to join him in the act of creation and the act of formation of his good creation, but at the same time, he wants to stay incredibly involved in our lives. He wants to participate. He wants partners, not peons. And that's incredibly, incredibly important for us to get. God wanted humanity to join him in the act of the creation, of the formation, of the representation. He didn't simply blow us up and let us go any which way that we wanted. And if you read the rest of Scripture, the story of Scripture, because many of you have heard that the Bible is the B-I-B-L-E, the basic instructions before leaving earth. And certainly, there's lots of good ways that we can learn how to be a follower of Jesus Christ through this. But if this is just the, the, the owner's manual, I don't know about you, but I'm a dude. I've got a Y chromosome. I have very little interest in reading any manual that I get, even if it's for my own body. A, a different way of looking at what this is, is this is the story of our creator, our heavenly father, who desires relationship with his creation, with us. And so it's a pursuit of his image bearers, despite the fact that sin has severed that relationship. It is his pursuit of redeeming and restoring that relationship. And once he's restored relationship, he invites us to join him in the act of reaching out to others who remain estranged from him. And one day, when you get to Revelation, one day, that will be complete. And there will be no more tears, no more death. No more pain, no more cancer, none of this garbage. But we're not there yet. We're in the in-between. And in the in-between time, as we stumble through this sin-warped world, he invites us to join him in the process of representing his heart to the world. And this is a story that helps us to begin to understand his heart better so that we can begin to reflect his heart better. Does that make sense? So I, it's not just an instruction manual, although there's certainly a lot of really wonderful guidance. And it's not just a story. I mean, if it's some, some of the people in our life group, we were talking this week, and, and they, they're pretty new to their faith. And so they tried to just read this like you would any novel. Start in Genesis and read all the way to Revelation, expecting it to be linear. And the truth of the matter is, if you do that, you'll be frustrated. If you even start trying to read in, in the New Testament, let's start with Matthew and read it. Some of them were like, I was really surprised that I felt like I had heard some of these stories before by the time I got to Math or Mark and Luke. And I go, yeah, because there's four different perspectives of the same thing right from the get-go. So it's not just like a novel that you can read cover to cover, but it's not just an instruction manual either. Are we having fun yet? You still with me? Okay, so the Bible is God breathed, because in the same way that we don't just say that God breathed life into humanity and made a mud puppet, and we he didn't just breathe life into humanity and let him go, the same thing holds true for God's word. In the formation of the scriptures, he didn't 
breathe the words into the 40 different authors over 1,500 years as if they were the analog version of uh, uh, you know, speak typing. In the beginning, comma, God. You know, that's not how he's doing it because if that was the case, we would very much expect that the language would all be uniform. It would sound virtually exactly the same despite the fact that it was written in three different languages. And it's not. We know as we read it that every single author, although they were inspired by God, retained their own voice, their own writing style. Paul was a trained Pharisee. That's about as close as we get to an attorney today. Don't hate him for it. Okay? He was a religious attorney. His job was to parse scripture and explain what it meant and how it led to how we should live. That's why he was so zealous about stamping out the early church because he felt like they were misrepresenting God's word when in fact it was him and the rest of the Pharisees who had totally misunderstood the heart of God. And when Paul writes, he writes in very long, run-on sentences with very big words, probably how Jeff sometimes feels, like I teach with very big words that are unnecessary. But I was taught from a very early age, never use a big word when a diminutive one will suffice. So we try our best to keep it whatever, you know. I went to school for words, so I want to get my money's worth. Mark, on the other hand, when he writes, he wasn't educated. And so he writes in very short sentences, and it sounds a little choppy when you read it. First Jesus did this, then immediately he did this, then he did this, then he did that. And he's just kind of bullet pointing it. And so each author retained their own voice. They were not dictation software in human flesh. But the other extreme is not, the same, is not true either. It's not like God just gave them a little whiff of inspiration, then let them go like a balloon in order to just write whatever they felt so inclined to write. That's often what we think of when we talk about inspiration. Oh, I saw this beautiful sunset and I was inspired to write this poem. But that's not what we mean by that. That's not what Paul is intending to say by that. Because if that's the case, then what would have been written would have been absolutely haphazard. There would be very little to no control whatsoever about what was written. And so the truth is that when God breathed the scriptures, there was something in between those two extremes. He allowed them to retain their voice, but at the same time, he didn't just let them go to write whatever they want. The Holy Spirit guided them. And so I, I love the way that Peter, one of Jesus' followers, explained what it looks like to have been inspired by God. And he writes this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. He says this, For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The authors didn't just write anything that they wanted to. That would be this extreme. But nor were they just dictation software. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit and they wrote it down, but they retained their own personality, their own voice in the midst of it. And what we're left with is this beautiful, very diverse and sometimes difficult to understand compendium of man's interaction with God and our best understanding of who he is from our limited perspective. 
And because it's written from 40 different perspectives within their own context, at times it can be confusing. At times it can feel like, wait, wait, wait a minute. Matthew said it differently than Luke did, and John's gospel is totally in a different order. So when did it happen? And these discrepancies oftentimes are used by people to discount the Bible and say, oh yeah, this, can't, this totally can't be the word of God. Because there's discrepancies. Because the order is different in this book than in this book. What gives? But let's just remember human life here for a second. I want you to think for just a moment of a, a something in your life that was memorable that you and another person experienced at the same moment. Maybe it was something really exciting like the birth of a child or, or, or an, a trip you went on. Maybe it was something terrifying, like a, a, a really close call when you were driving. Um, maybe it was something breathtaking, like a sunset. When I was dating Kathy, I always had this really bad habit of explaining the sunset while we're watching the sunset. She's like, thanks, my eyes didn't work, so I really appreciate that. Are you thinking of a moment? Because my guess is, if I were to ask you and that person that you experienced that moment with to describe it, your, ex your explanations would be similar, but they would sound different. There would be different details that they would include, right? I mean, if I asked Dee and Connie to describe a person, Dee's going to talk about how their hairline is thinning, and Connie's going to talk about how much nose hair they have. They wouldn't. <laughs> but I'm just saying perspective. And I will tell you every single time that I try to share a story about Kathy and I doing something, when Kathy and I are having a conversation with a couple, every single time Kathy will try to interrupt me mid-story to try to tell a detail that she feels like I'm omitting or she'll want to tell what happened. And I'm like, wait a minute, I'm telling this story. If you want to tell the story, I'll back off. You can do it, right? Because both of us experienced the same thing, but we experienced it from our perspective. And so although I think I'm telling it right, I don't have a monopoly on the right way of telling it. And she experienced the same thing, and she's sharing it from her perspective. And the same holds true for the Gospels. We have four different authors telling the story of Jesus' interaction with his disciples and, and the ministry that he did. Of course they're going to share different details. Because not only are they different people looking at it from a different perspective, but they're writing to different audiences. And, and let's just be honest, when you're telling a story to your kids, you're going to tell it slightly differently than you would maybe to your parents, and certainly differently than you would to your friends, and definitely differently than you would to your pastor, right? You're going to use different language. You're going to focus on different details. You're going to make it age and stage appropriate. And so every time we tell a story, there's a whole lot of context that is involved in the telling of the story. And that's why when you read the scriptures and there are four gospels and there's slight discrepancies in it, it's not actually a knock against the Bible. In fact, it shows the authenticity of the Bible. And, and for me at least, and for a lot of other theologians, we find that to actually be something that makes it more trustworthy rather than less trustworthy. Because if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John just said exactly the same thing, 
then we would be led to believe that they were just copying off of one another. And certainly, Matthew and Luke used Mark's gospel as the foundation for their telling of the gospel, but they added in details that they themselves had experienced. And then John comes along and goes, I'm just going to kind of do my own thing and tell it a totally different way. And each of them are writing to a different audience with a different intent of what they're trying to get across. And that's why those discrepancies are there. It doesn't undermine the trustworthiness of the scriptures. It actually makes it more trustworthy because it's more true to life. Now, one other thing that I want to look at this morning, and there's so much when we're talking about studying scripture and whether or not it's trustworthy. There's so many different threads we could go down. I had to cut out a whole bunch. One more detail that I do want to take the time to, to, to address today is the fact that what we hold in our hands here is not obviously the original manuscripts of the Bible. I mean, first off, it was never written in English. It was never written on really thin vellum that if you try to write something on one side, it bleeds through to the other side, not, not complaining. Um, it was never, you know, in this nice fake pleather backing that, that ends up becoming leprous and, and shedding all of its skin. Um, it, Jesus' words were never in red letters. It never had the, the verse breakdowns or the chapter breakdowns. Those were added later on. So all of these things, this is in itself a translation or a copy of the originals. And one of the knocks against the Bible is that we don't actually have any of the original documents, which is true. There are no original manuscripts because all of those manuscripts were written about 2,000 years or longer ago. They were handled a great deal. And one thing that we know is that paper doesn't last very long. But rather than that being something that causes us to simply disregard scripture altogether, I want to put this into context. We don't have any original manuscripts from any of the contemporary writers of that time. So let me give you just a few examples of some contemporary authors and the manuscripts that we have. Because here's, here are the two things that scholars are looking for when it comes to trying to discern whether or not what we hold in our hands is trustworthy. How many copies of something do we have? And how much variance is there between the copies? Meaning how much discrepancies are there in the actual words that are used? So in college, I was tasked with reading Plato's Republic. Plato is a guy, it's not Plato. This is the guy Plato, who was a Greek philosopher. Um, he wrote, his, his most famous work is uh, uh, The Republic. I was tasked with reading that in college. It was really, really exciting stuff. Not really. Of the manuscripts that we have, we only have seven existing manuscripts. And the closest, the earliest manuscript that we have was written a full 1,200 years after Plato actually wrote it. So there's 12 centuries of time between the original and the copy that we have, the earliest copy that we have. Then you add in Caesar's Gallic Wars. Anybody here heard of Caesar? Not the salad, the person, right? Okay, Caesar wrote about the wars that he was a general in that called the Gallic Wars. We only have 10 copies of Caesar's manuscript. And the earliest copy is a full thousand years after he originally wrote it. And yet we don't have people saying, well, you can't trust it because there's a thousand years in between. But that's a lot of time. 
Anybody heard of Homer's Iliad? And I, not, not from the Simpsons. Homer wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. Some of you read the Cliff Notes version of that in school. Um, the Iliad is one of the most formational works of art from the early antiquity. And yet, we only have 643 manuscripts. That's quite a lot compared to 7 and 10. But we only have 643. And the closest we can get to Homer's Iliad, which is one of the foundations of literature, is 500 years. So how about the Bible? Well, let's take the New Testament first. In the New Testament, we have 5,600 manuscripts of the New Testament, and that's just in Greek. When you add in all of the other languages that it was translated into at a very early stage, that number jumps to 24,000 manuscripts. And unlike 12,000 or 1,200 years, or 1,000 years, or 500 years, the distance between the, mo the original manuscripts and the copies that we have is less than 100 years. And in fact, the one book that we have the oldest surviving manuscript is actually a section of John's Gospel that we're studying. It's within 30 years of when, Jesus, or when, when John wrote his Gospel. John may have actually even been alive, although it probably wasn't the case, but he might have even been alive. And certainly many of his disciples were alive when that copy was made. And this is what that gives us the ability to do. It gives us the ability to then look at the, all of the copies that we have and even our translations in English that we have and say, okay, how much variance is there? How much has it changed from that copy that was made 2,000 years ago? And when scholars do that work, when they look through it with a fine-tooth comb, they come away with saying 0.5%, or to put it another way, one-half of 1% variance which is unheard of. That's because it's grammatical errors as they're copying down the words. They didn't, this is before Gutenberg's uh, printing press, right? So they had to hand copy it, and they put, oh, there you go, just in time. Yeah, read it really fast before it's gone. Um, actually, just take it down, because now it's just distracting. Well, whatever, there it goes, bye-bye. I tell you what, I'll, I'll, I'll send you an email later this week with this and some other things that we can't get into because it's exciting stuff, but we don't have time for it today. We have 0.5% or one half of 1% discrepancy, and that is attributed to a, a very overzealous scholar who thought he needed to insert the story of the woman caught in adultery plus a few other grammatical issues in the, in the copy errors. And other than that, almost nothing. And here's what scholars who study this for a living tell us. Of that one half of 1% of variance, there is not a single theological issue that has changed because of those mistakes. Not a single one. Even the story of the woman caught in adultery is not out of character for Jesus. Even if it was totally made up, which they don't believe it was, but even if it was totally made up, it is still 100% consistent with the character and the approach that Jesus took with people both who were prideful and people who were broken. 100% consistent. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. But here's the point. The Bible is utterly trustworthy, and the fact that we are, at this point, able to look at the old manuscripts and say, you know, 
That little section, that little story probably wasn't originally there. The fact that we're able to discern that makes me much more trusting that when I read this, I'm reading what the original authors and what the one who inspired those authors to write intended for us to read. That gives me a lot of confidence in what I'm reading. But that's just the New Testament. What about the Old Testament? Because the Old Testament's old been around for a lot longer. There's a lot, lot of space there. So what about the Old Testament? Well, up until 75 years ago, I would have said, well, it's not doing so great because we have about a thousand, or I'm sorry, it, the, the earliest manuscripts were written a thousand years after Jesus. And since the last book of the Bible was written 400 years before Jesus, that means we had 1,400 years of space between the, the original writings and the earliest manuscript. But all of that changed in the late 1940s when some Bedouin boys were playing down by the Dead Sea and one of them threw a rock into a cave because that's what boys do irrespective of culture. They throw rocks. And when they threw a rock into one particular cave, they heard breaking pottery because that's what boys do. They break things irrespective of culture. And so then they explored, they, what, what did we just break? And they found these clay jars, and in those clay jars were these old, crispy manuscripts of some sort. And they thought, well, maybe we can get some, you know, candy money out of this. So they, they took a couple of the jars to an antiquities dealer, and it's a good thing they did, because what they had discovered were the Dead Sea Scrolls. And those scrolls were written by Jews who were so over the, the, the moralism and the craziness and, and the the corruption of society that they had actually gone down to the Dead Sea to kind of live on their own as hermits. And they had hidden many of their original copies that they had copied down of the Bible. They'd hidden them in the caves there to preserve them. And then when that community disappeared, they were left there. And so within just a couple of years, as we began to read what is now known as the Dead Sea Scrolls, what it did is it lopped a full thousand years off of the distance between the originals and our earliest manuscripts. It went from 1,400 years down to 400 years. This is huge, and it's unprecedented for biblical scholars because now you have the ability to look at something that's a thousand years different, our, what we thought were our original copies and, and, and our, our earliest copies, and then the ones that are four, a thousand years closer to it, and you go, how much variance has crept in here? That would be interesting, wouldn't you think? What they found is that there was only a 5% difference between these that were only 400 years and those that were 1,400 years. And of that 5%, consistently, like with the New Testament, not a single issue that, it, that, that changed the theology of our understanding of Scripture. Not a single discrepancy there. The, the issue was simply copyist errors, words that had been flipped, things like that. And so what that leads us to say is that this is not only been inspired by God in its writing, in its formation, but also in its preservation. God protected it. But there's a, a third aspect of inspiration when it comes to the Bible that is imperative for us today, and that is the way that God continues to inspire it when we read it. Because the truth of the matter is, this isn't just God's word to them there and then. This is God's word to us here and now. And it is absolutely relevant, despite the fact that it was written 
in a radically different context in the Middle East, despite the fact that it was written centuries and even millennia ago, it continues to cut right to the heart of where we are at and what we are walking through. I love the way that the writer of Hebrews puts it. I'm getting close to being finished, so if you're falling asleep, wake up so you can pretend like you've been listening this whole time. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. And you guys know, some of you know this by heart. The word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitude of the heart. Now, what is the writer of Hebrews implying about the Bible? They're suggesting that God's word is like a scalpel that he uses to begin to carve away the dry rot that naturally forms on a human heart, the ways that sin corrupts us, the cancerous sores that begin to form. It's like a scalpel that peels that off so that our hearts become more shaped to reflect his heart, so that we have the ability to love people who are stinking unlovable and have peace in the midst of a world that seems like it's going crazy and to be patient as we wait for God's return, right? So this is a scalpel that God uses to do heart surgery on us. But here's the problem. Many of us have been raised to believe that this is actually a sword that we are to be using to beat people into submission. Or I like to use the, the, the term like a, a cudgel, where we take a verse and we rip it out of its context like we might rip a, a, a branch off of a tree and then we beat people over the head with it in order to try to get them to agree with us. And all we're doing is we're pushing them away. All we're doing is reminding them that Christians are judgmental. All we're doing is pushing them further away. If we would simply remember that this was God's tool for shaping our hearts so that we can be the tool that he uses to reflect his heart into the world, as opposed to the tool that we use to beat people into submission, then we would be better representatives of God. I would suggest to you, because it's interesting, and we're going to talk about this next week, this has gone from being known in our society as the good book to being considered just a book. But now, more than ever, it's being considered the bad book that gives reason for people to be bigoted and hateful and judgmental and, and, and prideful and all of that other junk. And I would suggest it's not because of what is in here. It's because of the ways that we have misunderstood and misrepresented the heart of God that this reveals. And if we would simply remember that this is intended first and foremost to shape our hearts so that we can reflect his heart rather than being a weapon to beat people into submission, we would be way better representatives of him. And so next week, rather than diving back into John right away, what we're going to do is we're going to take a week to simply ask the question, how can we be better interpreters of Scripture? Every time we read the Bible, not only are we reading an interpretation, again, it wasn't written in English, it was written in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. So every time you read the Bible, it is in itself an interpretation of those original documents. But then we read it into our own context and we are also interpreting it. 
And to paraphrase one of my favorite verses, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. Right? You can find a verse to support anything you want to do if you will just look hard enough and, and excise it out of the context of what it really intended to say. You can find any verse to support anything you want to do. But what we want to do is we want to rightfully understand God's word, interpret it correctly so that we can represent the heart of our God correctly. So next week, we're going to have a really fun conversation about how do we read scripture in a way that we don't twist scripture and take it out of context. I, I would love, I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. I would love to show you the video that I plan to show you of a group of people in China getting Bibles for the very first time. I, in the email I will send out to those of you who are on our email list, and if you're not on our email list, just email pastor at lighthousecommunity.com. Again, that's pastor at lighthousecommunity.com. You can ask to be added to our mailing list, and I will send you this video because it's beautiful, of Chinese men and women who are finally getting a Bible in their own language for the very first time, and the way in which they celebrate humbles me, because I'll be honest, for many of us, and even for myself sometimes, this thing has a tendency to sit on my desk or in my backpack for most of the week in between Sundays. This is a treasure. It is a miracle that it's even in existence and it is utterly relevant for our lives. It is truly trustworthy. I, I have found that every time I have read scripture and applied it to my life, I have never had it lead me astray. But I can tell you there are plenty of times where I've read scripture, disregarded it, and did what I wanted to do and found out why this was wise. And why I would have been wise to heed that instruction. So, next week, we're going to spend some time trying to figure out how we can read this faithfully. But for now, let's just simply appreciate what we have and spend some time appreciating a God who wants us to know him so much that he went to all this effort to create this for us. Father God, we thank you for your word. More importantly, we thank you for what your word points to, and that's you and your utter desire to have relationship with us. We thank you that you love us enough that you have gone through the writing and the preservation and the, and the ways in which we even read and understand your word. I thank you, Holy Spirit, for the ways that you work in helping your word come alive and terraform our hearts. We want to be representatives of you, Father, and if this compendium, if the Bible is the tool that you use to shape our hearts so that we can better reflect you, then, Father God, we invite you to use it, even if it hurts, even if it exposes stuff that we would prefer to keep hidden, even if you ask to cut away things that we have been finding our solace in. Help yourself to our lives, Jesus. In your holy name.
Jeff actually reminded me of something. Some of you, this was like, okay, I got through it. Some of you are really interested in kind of, I mean, it's the foundation of our faith. If the, it's important for us to understand how to understand and discern God's word. And perhaps the single most important book that I have read other than the Bible on this topic is a book that I was introduced to in grad school called uh, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee and, 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 and Fee and Stewart. I absolutely encourage you, if you're interested in diving a little bit deeper, it's very easy to understand. It's very helpful in making sense of the Bible that you hold in your hand, how it was put together, even the difference between the translations, so that you can pick which one you want to use based upon kind of understanding what they're trying to do when they were translating it. Super helpful. So it's again, it's called the, uh, How to Read the Bible, for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee. I encourage you to check it out. I think I'm going to buy some copies and we'll have them next week. I won't buy enough for all of you. So if you have an Amazon account, you can do it too. All right? Um, I love you guys. Please, this week, make a point of opening God's Word, spending some time in it. If you don't know where to start, maybe just start in John. We've been spending a lot of time there. Just go there. Or maybe the Psalms as those prayers to God and let them be your cry. Or maybe the, the, the Proverbs, if you're ser searching for wisdom, how to live a wise life, the, there's no better place to go than the Proverbs. But please, this is God's word to you, and it is utterly relevant. So I encourage you, don't just let it gather dust. If there's a way that we can be praying for you, we want to. You can either drop a prayer request in the white boxes in the back along with offering, or you can just email it to pastor at lighthousecommunity.com. I pray that you guys have a wonderful Memorial Day that we get to celebrate because others have paid the ultimate price. Have a wonderful Memorial Day. We love you. Be safe. See you next week.